0: Online at KFUO.org.
1: And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series on the Augsburg Confession, today covering Article 1 of God. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Gold Parish of Emanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion, confessor, in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton. He is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Mescouta, Illinois. Pastor Clayton, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back with you on Concord Matters. Absolutely, and we're glad to have you back on Concord Matters as we begin and get into the Augsburg Confession here today. Last week we did an introduction, a historical introduction to the Augsburg Confession, and set up what we're going to cover here over the next 28 weeks or so as we go through article by article and teach the various doctrines presented here in this chief document of our Lutheran Confession of the Christian Faith. And so today we're glad to have you get us started with that here with Article 1, looking at the doctrine of God. And to get us started, then, I'm going to go ahead and just read the text of the Augsburg Confession, Article 1. And just a reminder for our listeners that while there are several good editions, and especially some popular older translations of the Book of Concord out there, those are great. And from time to time, we do even reference some of those other editions. But on this show, we read from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So this is Article 1 from the Augsburg Confession on God. Our churches teach with common consent that the decree of the Council of Nicaea about the unity of the divine essence and the three persons is true. It is to be believed without any doubt. God is one divine essence who is eternal— without a body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things, visible and invisible, citing Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. Yet there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, citing Matthew chapter 28 verse 19. These three persons are the same essence and power. Our churches use the term person as the fathers have used it. We use it to signify not a part or a quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. Our churches condemn all heresies, citing Titus chapter 3 verses 10 through 11, that arose against this article such as the Manichaeans who assumed that there are two principles, one good and the other evil. They also condemn the Valentinians, Arians, Eunomians, Muslims, and all heresies such as these. Our churches also condemn the Samosatines, old and new, who contend that God is but one person. Through sophistry, they impiously argue that the Word and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons. They say that Word signifies a spoken word, and Spirit signifies motion created in things. All right, Dr. Clayton, with that being the text of the Augsburg Confession, Article 1, why did the confessors begin their confession of faith here with this article? Why do they start with a statement of God?
0: I think this shows what the intent of the Reformers, including Luther, Melanchthon, and those who were in accord with them, was at this point in 1530. Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg in 1517, so we're about 13 years into the Reformation now at this point and during that time the lutheran reformers had continually tried to show the errors of the catholic church the in- initial intent of luther and the reformers was not to split the church it was not to divide into their own sect but to bring reform the so-called reformers to the catholic church at that time And so to start with the topic of God shows really the conservative nature of the Lutheran Reformation. Luther and the others weren't out to become a radical departure from anything that had been taught in the church before. They simply wanted to call the church as it was uh, at that time back to repentance, call the church back to its doctrinal roots in the early church fathers and in Scripture and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so the reformers had the idea that they wanted to conserve the good doctrine that had been taught before that the church at the time had somewhat strayed from. Through the Middle Ages, there had been a number of accumulations of tradition and things that were accepted as doctrine that were not consistent with what Jesus taught, with what Scripture taught, with what the apostles taught, and in fact, not consistent what the early fathers of even the Roman Catholic Church or the Christian Church taught. And so the Reformers sought to call the church back to the faithful teaching that had gone before and to strip away that which had been accumulated, which was wrong, but only that which was wrong. The idea of Luther and the Lutheran Reformers basically was, sorry, this is bad grammar, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so Luther and the Reformers that followed him and joined with him had a very conscious pattern that if something was contrary to Scripture, they would seek to remove it, reform it, have that taken out of church doctrine and practice. However, if something was either consistent with Scripture or even not inconsistent with Scripture, then that practice was to be maintained for decency and good order in the church. And so Luther and those who followed him were very conservative in their efforts to reform the church in contrast to the more radical reformers that we might think of Zwingli and Munster and others who in some ways, this may be a, um, a bit of a broad brush, but said the Roman Catholic Church is so corrupt that we need to scrap everything that smacks of Roman Catholicism and try to reinvent what we imagine the New Testament church looked like. Luther and his followers did not try to do that that's why, for example, in some branches of the so-called Protestant churches today, you see where there is no retention of vestments, no retention of the liturgy, very little that looks at all like the historic Western tradition of the church. That is more the outgrowth of the radical Reformation, not the Lutheran Reformation. The Lutheran Reformation was a conservative Reformation that said, if we can conserve that which has been taught and that which has been done in the church, even on the basis of tradition to some extent, so long as it doesn't conflict with Scripture, we're going to respect that. But we're only going to correct and call for reform in those areas that contradict Scripture. And so this is the spirit in which this article of the Augsburg Confession starts. And so the Reformers say, let's start on something that we agree upon. The Lutheran Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church agreed on the teaching of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, and so they started there to show we are not a sect outside of the church. We are one with the historic Christian church dating back to the early fathers of the church, to the apostles, to Scripture, and of course, to Christ. And so by starting with the doctrine of God, the Lutheran reformers are saying, we are the church. We believe what the church has always believed, taught, and confessed. And as the church, we now call our, shall we say, brothers in the Roman Catholic Church of that time, to return to the historic teaching of the church from which the Roman church had strayed and the Lutheran church then was, in fact, the faithful representative. And so Luther and Lutheran reformers sought to reform or correct the church. They did not seek to start a new church. So by starting with this teaching about God, which was agreed upon, and they pretty well knew it would be agreed upon, They were showing that they were not trying to break from the church. They were not trying to start over. They were trying to call the one true church at that time to repentance and to teach faithfully what was given by Christ in scripture and in the early church fathers. And so they start with this article, where strong agreement existed already to show that this was their plan. And to an extent, this plan worked well in terms of Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession, which you just read. The Roman scholars that were at the Council of Augsburg, the Diet of Augsburg, responded to the Augsburg Confession with a document called the Confutation of the Augsburg Confession. There were parts of the Augsburg Confession, as you will get to in coming weeks, where the Roman Catholic Church disagreed with the Lutheran position and in some cases did so rather strongly and vehemently. But Article 1 was not one of those places. Article 1, in fact, is accepted and appreciated. So let me read from the Confutation of the Augsburg Confession published by the Roman Catholic scholars at the Diet of Augsburg. They write, Article 1, God. In the first article, they, that is the Lutherans, confess the unity of the divine essence in three persons in accordance with the Council of Nicaea. This is to be accepted because it agrees with the rule of faith and the Roman Church. The Council of Nicaea, convened by Emperor Constantine, has always been held in the highest regard. At this council, 318 bishops, renowned for their holiness of life, martyrdom, and learning, defined and formulated this article on the essential unity of the three persons after carefully investigating the Holy Scriptures. Likewise, their condemnation of heresies that are contrary to this article are also to be accepted, namely the Manichaeans, Arians, Eunomians, Valentians, and Samositans. The Catholic Church has long condemned all of these false teachings. And so the way that the Lutheran confessions begin here with AC1, On the doctrine of God actually does show the unity of the church and shows that the Lutheran church is within the fold of the Christian church historically and up to the present time, that we confess the central doctrine of the Trinity in a way that is consistent with what has always been taught in the church. This also then is noticed in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. So in 1530, on June twenty-fifth, the Augsburg Confession itself was presented to the Diet of Augsburg. Following that, the Roman Catholic theologians wrote their confutation of the Augsburg Confession that I just read from. And following that, then Melanchthon worked out another document called the Apology or the Explanation, the Defense of the Augsburg Confession. And he also notes that the Roman Catholic scholars had accepted the doctrine of the Trinity as presented in Article One of the Augsburg Confession on God. And so in the Apology, Article 1, Melanchthon writes, Our adversaries approve Article 1 of our confession, in which we declare that we believe and teach that there is one divine, undivided essence. Yet there are three distinct persons of the same divine essence and co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have always taught and defended this article. We believe that it has sure and firm testimonies in Holy Scripture that cannot be overthrown. We constantly affirm that those thinking otherwise are outside of Christ's church, are idolaters and insult God. And so in all three of these documents, in the Augsburg Confession, in the Confutation of the Augsburg Confession written by the Roman Catholic theologians of the Diet of Augsburg, and in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, there is consistent agreement and no dissension at all regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, either in the way that it's presented in the positive in the Augsburg Confession or in the ways that the Augsburg Confession then condemns heresies that have arisen around this topic. There is strong agreement on all of these points. And so this shows that the Lutheran movement was within the scope of Christianity. And in a way also, it shows a form of respect on the part of the Lutheran Reformers to try to seek to resolve their differences with the Roman Catholic Church in a respectful and uplifting way that could lead toward actual honest reconciliation between the parties. That wasn't entirely out of the question at Augsburg in 1530. Now it became more and more remote in the years following. And through the decade of the 1530s, the Lutheran reformers somewhat gave up the hope that they could have an actual honest council of the church to discuss these things and try to bring about reform. But at the point of the Augsburg Confession in 1530, there was still the hope that perhaps the differences between the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic branches of the one true Christian and apostolic church could be reconciled through open discussion at a council. And so the Augsburg Confession begins in Article 1 on a position of agreement, saying respectfully, this is what we teach. This is what we know you teach. We are one with you on this, and we would be happy to be one with you so long as you allow Scripture to be heard and taught in all the other areas of doctrine as well. And so there is a respect for the process of seeking reform that is given by starting on an article of agreement. Then from there, they do work, at least certainly by Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession on justifying faith, to areas of known disagreement. But they start from a platform of a united stance and doctrine on the nature of God in the Trinity. And so they're not seeking to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They have the idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so they are starting from a position of agreement out of respect to allow the process to try to bring honest reform to that teaching that had gone astray in the Roman Catholic Church through the Middle Ages.
1: You talked about in there that this shows that the Lutheran movement was within the scope of Christianity, and we see that they reference there the Council of Nicaea and the faith that it confessed. So what does it say then about the Lutheran identity to affirm that we teach what the Council of Nicaea confessed, and the faith that it confessed, emphasizing the unity of God, yet three persons as that article proceeds there.
0: The Christian church had a number of struggles in its first few centuries with some of the different heretics, in fact, that were mentioned at the end of AC1, and that led to the calling of the Council of Nicaea in 325 and then continued to be worked out over the next century or so in future councils as well. But the church struggled mightily to understand or to teach clearly, even perhaps if we can't fully understand the nature of God in the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the Lutheran Church also accepts the doctrinal teachings and statements of the Council of Nicaea and the ecumenical councils that followed it, especially in their teachings on the doctrine of the Trinity. And so within the first article of the Augsburg Confession, we have a reference to the Council of Nicaea that we see that the Council of Nicaea is accepted and respected in the Lutheran Church. Our churches teach with common consent that the decree of the Council of Nicaea about the unity of the divine essence and the three persons is true. And so they start out saying, we are in agreement with all the scholarly work, the excellent scriptural work that was done to help explain or talk about the Trinity of the Council of Nicaea. And then interestingly, After they affirm the teaching of the Council of Nicaea in AC1, Melanchthon goes on to largely actually use wording from the Athanasian Creed in his following statements. And so that shows that there is a great respect for that symbolic statement as well, which in fact had been included in the Book of Concord eventually, even before the Augsburg Confession as the foundational Teachings of the Lutheran Church following Scripture, of course, as Scripture is the absolute basis and source of all doctrine in the Lutheran Church. And so Luther and the Reformers accepted and taught the Nicene Creed as well as the Athanasian Creed, and of course, in its proper place, also the Apostles' Creed. So after affirming the Nicene Creed and using language from the Athanasian Creed, The Lutheran reformers then go on to talk about some of the attributes of God, that God is of one divine essence. He is eternal. He has no body. He is without parts. He's an infinite power, omnipotent. He is omniscient, all wise and good. And so these are affirmations of what God is in a way that we can describe sometimes in opposition to what we as humans are. We see what we are, that we are frail, weak, not overly wise, and then God is the opposite of those. But then the article AC1 goes on to talk about, in greater depth and greater importance, the nature of the triune God. Yet there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are the same essence and power. And so they delve into the doctrine of the Trinity. And They confess with the ancient church that God is three in one. But ultimately, also, we need to recognize and respect that the doctrine of the Trinity and behind that, actually, the essence and nature of God is beyond our human understanding. And so, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that they worked to try to understand the Trinity, and I kind of backtracked that a little bit, I said, or if not understand, then at least teach or explain the Trinity to what extent we can. Because ultimately, the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery that we cannot fully understand, that we can't grasp with our feeble human minds. And it is a mystery understood ultimately only by God himself. I was reminded of this when I had a professor in college at Concordia University, Chicago, that in a doctrine class said something to the effect of, if you think you understand the Trinity, you are more wrong than you can imagine. And that was kind of a uh, a humility wake-up call for you know, budding theologians in college to say that we are not going to understand all that there is in the Christian faith. There is much that is a mystery beyond our human comprehension. Martin Luther himself understands this quite clearly. And so, in a sermon that Martin Luther preached on Trinity Sunday one year, he went into this distinction that we can perhaps talk about the triune nature of God, we can perhaps teach a doctrine of the Trinity, but we can't, with our fallen sinful human reason, fully grasp or understand the essence of three and one, yet not three gods, but one God, yet not one person, but three persons. And so Luther, in his very common and very correct understanding of the humble use of reason in his sermon for Trinity Sunday, says this. O shameless reason, how can we, poor, miserable mortals, grasp this mystery of the Trinity? We who do not understand the operation of our own physical powers, speech, laughter, sleep, things whereof we have daily experience, yet we would, untaught by the word of God, guided merely by our fallible head, pronounce upon the very nature of God? is it not supreme blindness for man when he is unable to explain the most insignificant physical operation daily witnessed his own body to presume to understand something above and beyond the power of reason to comprehend something whereof only god can speak so luther is saying in this part of his sermon that we cannot with our fallen human intellect fully grasp or understand the inner nature and workings of the triune god and if we try, if we think that we are going to understand, if we are going to comprehend the nature of God, we're going to be wrong. We, we don't even understand how the world works, which is merely an extension of what God has created. And so if we can't even fully understand the creation, how are we going to understand the creator? That is the argument that Luther rightfully makes in a sermon that he preached on Trinity Sunday. In that same sermon, Luther also said, When I know it is the Word of God that declares the Trinity, that God has said so, I do not inquire how it can be true. I am content with the simple Word of God, let it harmonize with reason as it may, and every Christian should adopt the same course with respect to all the articles of our faith. And so for Luther, reason always had only at best a servant role in theology. The Word of God has and always maintains the highest place in Christian doctrine. And so what Luther is saying here is, I can't understand the triune nature of God. And we as sinful human beings with fallible reason never will. But what Luther says, Scripture teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. Luther says, when I know it is the word of God that declares the Trinity, that God has said so, I'm content with the simple word of God. That is classic Luther in his way that he formulates theology. We perhaps can understand a certain extent, but not all. And that's not what we're called to do. Ultimately, we're not called to understand God. We are called to believe what God has given us in his word. So we walk by faith, not by full comprehension or understanding. And so even within this doctrine of the Trinity in AC 1, we need to recognize the importance of humility in our theology, especially when we are describing God. We don't need to understand or intellectually grasp everything about the Christian faith. And there are many things about the Christian faith, including the doctrine of the Trinity, that we will never fully understand or grasp intellectually. But that's okay because we are called to believe, not to understand. We leave understanding to God in his far, far superior wisdom. And so, The attitude of a theologian is to be an attitude of humility, that we approach the Word of God and say, let the Word of God be true. Let the Word of God teach us exactly what it has to say. If we don't understand how this harmonizes with that, or if we don't comprehend how this teaching unfolds, that's okay. We'll chalk that up to our fallible human reason. But we will not pronounce judgment over the Word of God based on our sinful fallen reason. That is an attitude of humility that needs to be modeled in all theological undertakings and conversations, to let God speak, let God be God, let God's Word teach as it does. We may understand parts, we may not understand parts. But we do not challenge the teaching of the Word of God based on our understanding. We let God's Word speak, we listen, and then we explain what we can based on the Word of God. And that is what the historic church's position has been regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, as is taught
1: then also in AC1. I think that's an important bridge then to a question I want to bring up after we take a break here. But you said there, let the word of God be true. And that really defines our Lutheran theology. And as we covered in our introductory episode, the confessors really felt that it was necessary to state in what our edition of the book of Concord calls the preface to the Augsburg confession. They stated that their teaching was grounded, not only on what is common to the Christian church with what the church has always confessed. And we see that's what they did there in referencing Nicaea, as you covered really thoroughly there for us. But as you said, more important for the confessors was that the word of God is true, and that defines our theology. And so when we come back from break here, I'd like to pick up with the question of, where do we see this doctrine of the Trinity confessed in scriptures, taught in the scriptures? So that is where we'll pick up on the other side of this break, as we're talking with the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton on Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession of God. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on
0: Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO.
1: As guest pastors from around the world, lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. And welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. Kirk Clayton about the Augsburg Confession, Article 1 on God. And Dr. Clayton, As we set up just before we went to break there, you said very well for us, I think, that what really defines our Lutheran theology is that we let the Word of God be true. And once again, we saw this very clearly as we introduced the Augsburg Confession last week, that the Lutheran confessors really felt it was quite necessary to state That our teaching is grounded not only in what is common to the Christian church, what the fathers have always confessed, what the councils have confessed, but that's primarily flowing forth from the scriptures. So go ahead and take us into where in the scriptures is this doctrine of the Trinity?
0: Now, it's interesting, as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, that the word Trinity itself is not actually used in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that the doctrine of the Trinity is therefore not in the Bible or is false. The word Trinity was developed by the church to describe faithfully what they see as teaching in the Bible. And so, Trinity, when you think about the word, you see tri or triple and unity. So, there is a triple unity regarding God's nature that is described in Scripture, this Trinity, this three in one. And This comes out quite clearly in the New Testament, but also we do see hints of the triune nature of God in the Old Testament as well, which is maybe, in fact, a little bit more interesting to talk about, because we know that the Jews who hold the Old Testament do not see or recognize the Trinity in the Old Testament, whereas We, as Christians in our Trinitarian theology, we do recognize the Trinity even in the Old Testament. So there is an interesting way that God reveals himself even as triune in the Old Testament, even though the successors to his people in the Old Testament don't recognize it. I qualify that by saying, in a way, his successors to the people of the Old Testament, meaning the Jews. But in fact, the Christian church is the true successor to God's people in the Old Testament. Of course, God's people are not a genetic group. They are those who truly believe what God has taught. And so, the Christian church is the continuity of the people of God in the Old Testament. And so, when we look at the Old Testament, we can see hints of the Trinity even in the very earliest verses of Scripture. Think about Genesis chapter 1. We hear, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Now, as we look at just those verses, it's not absolutely clear and explicit, but there are implicit hints of the triune nature of God already in these first few verses of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We'll take that as a reference to God the Father. Later we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the waters. And so there we have a reference to what we, in light of the New Testament, understand as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And then perhaps what is most fascinating is the work of creation is described in this way, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I like to think about this. This is not exactly the translation, but this is how I like to think about this. And God sent forth his word to bring forth light. Then we fast forward to how God reveals himself in John chapter one in the New Testament. And we see in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we see that all things were made through him, that is, the Word. And then, of course, John becomes very specific and says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And there's no doubt that the Word that John is talking about in John chapter 1 is none other than Jesus Christ himself, or as we might say, the second person of the Trinity. So John chapter 1 points us back to Genesis chapter 1 to see that the second person of the Trinity is in fact also active in creation, not as his primary work, but as an assistant to the Father in the work of creation, as God speaks, as God sends forth the word, light is created. Or now, to read that passage also in light of the New Testament, we might say, The first person of the Trinity sends forth the second person of the Trinity to bring forth light at his command, while the third person of the Trinity is hovering over the face of the deep. So even in the first few verses of Genesis, from the very beginning of the Bible, We don't see explicit teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity, but we have hints that there is a complexity in the workings of God that goes beyond perhaps a simple monotheistic understanding of that text. And it doesn't take very long before we find another hint of that. The standard word for God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Elohim. And something that's kind of fun about the word Elohim is, while it's translated God in the singular, God, in Hebrew, Elohim is the plural ending. So Elohim, the word that the Old Testament consistently translates as God, actually is plural, God's. But it's never rendered regarding the one true God in the plural. It's rendered in the singular. Elohim, gods, is referred to as the one true God. And in fact, to make it even more clear, including in the Hebrew, when the word Elohim, which is grammatically plural, is used, it is overwhelmingly used with a singular verb. I realize I'm getting into the tall grass of grammar here, but grammar tends to fascinate theologians because there's a lot of important doctrine lurking in the grammar of scripture. And we need to pay attention to what Scripture teaches and pay attention very closely to what God's Word teaches, even through grammar. And that will come up again when we talk about Matthew chapter 28. But Elohim, the Hebrew standard word for God, which then, when it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint, comes out as hothios, singular, the God, one God is in fact, grammatically in Hebrew, plural, which again, doesn't explicitly teach the doctrine of the Trinity, but there's a hint there that in light of the New Testament, we can look back and see that there is something deeper going on than first meets the eye, when the way that the Hebrew scripture chooses to describe the one true God, the singular God, is by using the word Elohim, which is plural. And so, as we understand the Trinity, that there's a triple unity, a three in one nature to God, we can then look at the word Elohim and say, aha, that wouldn't necessarily be clear to someone who is not familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, but there is a hint there that God is, in fact, triune. We also can look at the Old Testament, at Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. This is in the story of Abraham and we're told that three visitors appear to Abraham. But these three visitors clearly are not just uh, three Bedouin nomads who happen to walk into Abraham's camp. In Genesis chapter 18, it's very clearly said that the Lord visits Abraham. So, let's see how this unfolds here in Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to Abraham Near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And so, in these two verses, we're told that three men came to Abraham, but it's very clear the text says, This is the Lord appearing to Abraham. So, if the Lord, singular, appears to Abraham, why do three men show up? Why not just one man who is the Lord? Again, it's not a slap you in the face. This is obviously the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But in light of understanding from the New Testament, we can see that the reason that three men come to Abraham as the Lord is a representation of the triune nature of God, three in one. This, by the way, is then the same account where the Lord, as these three visitors, tells Abraham and Sarah that even in Sarah's old age, she would bear a son and give him the name Isaac, meaning laughter, to represent the laughter of unbelief that Sarah laughed in the tent when she rejected this word of God initially. And then... Later on in the same chapter, this is where Abraham barters with God about the future of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, would you destroy the city for 50 people? Would you destroy it for 40? And he argues down. And it's very clear everybody understands that Abraham is bartering with God. But who he's talking to are three men who came to visit his camp. And so we have three men representing the one true God. So we have again a hint of the trinity there. So the text starts in Genesis chapter 18 verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. He looked up and saw three men standing nearby embodying the Lord. And then later in the text in Genesis 18:33 we read when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. And again, the Lord who had been speaking to Abraham was present as three men who came to visit. And so we see this triple reference to God here of three men in the one true God. And so we see again a hint, even in the Old Testament, of the triune nature of God. That's just the book of Genesis. We haven't even left the first book of the Old Testament yet. And we could go on and describe other things throughout the Old Testament that point us, hint to us, of the triune nature of God as well. But this becomes much more clear in the New Testament as we see the Trinity referenced specifically in the New Testament. One of the first places this comes out is at the baptism of our Lord, as recorded in Matthew chapter three, in Mark chapter one, and in Luke chapter three. There are references that as Jesus is baptized, as he comes up from the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, and the voice says, this is my son. And so the voice is very clearly identified with God the Father, because who is the Father of Jesus Christ? God the Father. And so Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3 all give references to the second person of the Trinity standing in the water, Jesus Christ, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, descending upon Him like a dove, and the first person of the Trinity, the Father, speaking and calling Jesus His beloved Son. So we see all three persons of the Trinity pretty clearly specified present at the baptism of our Lord. Now, John's gospel, we see some reference to the nature of God in that John references the presence of the Spirit like a dove, he does not record the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. That doesn't mean that there's any conflict there. There There's no conflict between adding or omitting true details that actually happened, but John knew that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already referenced the voice of the Father, and so he brings out the teaching of the Spirit, but not the Father. That doesn't mean he's denying the Father at Jesus' baptism, he simply records and focuses on other things. But John does delve into the teaching of the Trinity later. For example, in the teaching that Jesus shares with his apostles on Monday Thursday, as they are going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, for example, in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, Jesus tells his apostles, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me by taking from me, and that he will receive, that he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And so, in this passage from John chapter 16, within, again, just a short series of two or three verses, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all referenced. Jesus is speaking and talking about how the Holy Spirit will be sent and that the Son and the Spirit share in that which is the Father's. And so just in this one short paragraph here, we have all that belongs to the Father is mine, that is the Son's, and the Spirit will receive from the Son and make it known to you. So we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together to bring His truth to us in John chapter 16. We also see some indication of the triune nature of God at Jesus' transfiguration. Although the Holy Spirit is not mentioned, once again, the Son is present on the mountaintop and the voice of the Father is heard from heaven, again, affirming the Sonship of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned, but again, that isn't a denial of the Holy Spirit. It simply is focusing on the Father and the Son at that point. The triune name of God comes out very clearly in the baptismal formula, as I referenced a few minutes ago, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And again, I warned a bit ago that we'd have to delve into grammar a little bit. Remember, baptizing in the name, that's singular, grammatically singular. Baptize in the one name of, followed by three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To make logical sense, grammatical sense, that should say, baptizing in the names, plural of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what scripture gives us to say. Scripture says there is one name, therefore one God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have a singular name followed by three names, which should be plural, but it isn't. And so the baptismal formula from Matthew 28 gives us a very clear statement of the triune nature of God. There is one God, one name in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, of course, there are various Pauline references to the Trinity as well, such as what we sometimes hear in our liturgy, specifically in non-Eucharistic services, sometimes called the Apostolic Benediction or the Pauline Benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we see references to the Trinity, or at least hints about the Trinity, already In the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, we see the teaching of the Trinity come out much, much more clearly, even though the word Trinity itself is not used in Scripture. The teachings of Scripture clearly point to a triune nature of God that we then use the term Trinity as shorthand to describe the reality given to us in Scripture.
1: As you mentioned, the hints of the grammar with singular and plural uses in the original languages of the Bible, the Hebrew and the Greek, and we've been talking here about this Trinitarian faith, that is how Scripture clearly provides that teaching that God is triune, or as our Augsburg Confession puts it, that God consists of three persons. But the Augsburg Confession also states that these three persons are of the same essence and talks about the unity of the divine essence and we would call that a monotheistic religion, one God. Can you help us understand this tension between the one yet three, and is Christianity a monotheistic or Trinitarian religion then?
0: (laughs) Yes, and that is a challenge because there are other monotheistic religions, but only Christianity then is monotheistic and Trinitarian. So let's unpack this a little bit. And again, first, we're going to go back and remember that we do this with humility. The Christian theologian's stance needs to be one of standing under the text, not over it, and receiving what we see in Scripture, not demanding that it follow what we want it to follow. And so there would be those who would say that it would be a logical inconsistency to say that you could be both monotheistic and Trinitarian, but As Christians who follow Scripture, frankly, we don't really care because we're simply going to confess that which Scripture gives us, and we're not going to try to rationalize it into a neat, tidy box if we can't do that and be faithful to Scripture at the same time. So a monotheistic religion would teach that there is only one God. If we unpack that word a little bit, mono would be singular, meaning one and theistic God, so monotheism is the teaching of one God. Trinitarian, we already talked about, a triple unity. And so how can you be both monotheistic teaching there's one God and yet triune, focusing the triple nature of the persons of God? Well, that is then where there's a challenge specifically with Judaism and Islam, which are fiercely monotheistic religions, but not triune. And so Judaism and Islam would both repudiate Christianity for not being monotheistic. They would claim that Christianity teaches there are three gods, because there's a misunderstanding of what it means to say that there are three persons. And yet Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We teach, in fact, we teach fiercely that there is only one God. Any other is merely an idol there is only one true God. And yet that one true God has three persons as he's revealed himself to us. (laughs) We can't make this stuff up. This is the way God has revealed himself to us. So Christianity is, in a way that even may seem logically inconsistent, both monotheistic and Trinitarian. We teach that there is only one true God, but that one true God has revealed himself to us in scripture in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are indivisible, who are one God, and yet three persons. So we would say that Judaism and Islam then misunderstand God's revelation of himself in scripture as they deny the Trinity. Islam, in fact, is pointed out as a false teaching in article one, of the Augsburg Confession. As the end of the Augsburg Confession, Article 1 begins listing various heresies against the doctrine of the Trinity, and Islam is included in that list. But there are other ways to get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong. In fact, there are a whole lot of ways to get the doctrine of God wrong, and only one way to get it right, that is a Trinitarian monotheism. But the end of Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession condemns the Manichaeans, the Valentians, the Arians, the Eunomians, and the Muslims, which we just talked about. But there are various ways that you can get God wrong. And so the Augsburg Confession points out the teaching of the Manichaeans first. The Manichaeans were an early heresy in the church that taught that there were not three persons in one God, but in fact that there were two different gods. There was an evil judging God, and there was a good and loving God, and that what we see is basically best explained not by a three-in-one God, but two separate gods, one bad and one good. That was rejected and is still rejected. They also condemn the Valentinians, who were a Gnostic sect within the early church who linked Christian ideas with polytheism and tended to try to run things more philosophically rather than just accepting what Scripture teaches. This shows the problem when you operate with what's called a magisterial use of reason as opposed to a ministerial use of reason. That seems to be one of the problems of the Valentinians that they tried to philosophize God and make it make sense, and therefore they fell into a Gnostic heresy because of that. Then the Augsburg Confession also condemns, of course, the Arians, and then the Eunomians are a further branch of the Arians, so it kind of condemns the Arians twice. Um, Arius, sometimes called the arch-heretic at the Council of Nicaea, taught that Jesus maybe was a type of God, but not of the same essence as the Father, not homoousius, not of the same substance as the Father. Whereas Scripture shows us that Jesus is one with the Father in his very substance itself. And so we confess in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of the same substance, homoousius, with the Father by whom all things were made. But Arius taught that one of his catchphrases is, there was when he was not, saying that Jesus was a created being. There was a time before Jesus, before the second person of the Trinity existed. But The Nicene Creed makes very clear that the Son is eternal also with the Father. So these are some of the teachings that are rejected in the first article of the Augsburg Confession and continue to be rejected by the church today as teaching false doctrine about the Trinity.
1: You mentioned earlier the Pauline benediction that we see show up in some of our services, especially the prayer offices. And we like to make the case on this show that everything that the church does, she does on the basis of her confession of faith. And so our theology, our doctrine takes on concrete forms and the things that we do in the church, especially our liturgy, as you referenced. So how do we see that then in what the Augsburg Confession teaches here about the doctrine of our triune God?
0: Well, there's a wonderful phrase that the church uses, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of worship is the law of belief. As you worship, so will you believe. And so one of the ways that the church, other than, you know, stating something in, in a document like the Augsburg Confession, one of the ways that the church has taught the doctrine of the Trinity is through bringing Trinitarian language into our forms of worship. And so the liturgical practice of the Lutheran church Is rich in trinitarian references. We begin the service with a triune invocation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is also taken from the baptismal rite. And so we begin our service, recognizing for one that God is triune, but also that this triune God has made us His children in baptism and called us to be His people. We follow that in the Lutheran tradition with the absolution, which also is pronounced in a trinitarian formula: "I forgive you all your sins in the name." of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So again, absolution goes back to our baptism. That's followed by the introit, which concludes with the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The liturgy itself keeps bringing the triune nature of God to our attention so that we learn the doctrine of the Trinity simply by hearing the words of the liturgy. We also see Trinitarian references throughout the glory and excelsis, the hymn of praise, The collect of the day almost invariably ends with a Trinitarian conclusion. This we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Each week in the historic liturgy, there's a confession of the creed, which focuses on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the three articles throughout the liturgy, there are references to the triune nature of God so that, you know, even if your pastor isn't a terribly good theologian, you're still receiving the theology of the Trinity simply because you profess it and confess it in the liturgy.
1: Earlier, you mentioned also the Athanasian Creed, which we tend to use in our liturgy, you know, at least once a year on what we call Trinity Sunday. And that's, You said that that's the clearest confession of the Church about the doctrine that is confessed here in this article, and foundational for what the Lutheran confessors put forward here. The Athanasian Creed begins and ends by stating how essential it is that we confess this Trinitarian faith. How does that relate here to what the Lutheran confessors begin the Augsburg Confession with?
0: Sometimes it becomes a fad to say, why do you focus so much on doctrine? Why do you spend all this time with a document called the Augsburg Confession? Why do you have to write down and try to spell out everything about the doctrine of the Trinity? And now we've just spent an hour talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Shouldn't you instead be getting out and living a good Christian life and focusing on evangelism or things like that, setting up all sorts of you know, false alternatives? But the Athanasian Creed shows us how important this is. Here's what the Athanasian Creed says about the Trinity. Whoever desires to be saved, must think thus about the Trinity. Period. Full stop. It's that important. Whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Pastor Kirk Clayton, for joining us for Concord Matters today and giving us this teaching on God as is confessed here in the Augsburg Confession, Article 1. Next week, we'll take a look at Article 2 on original sin from the Augsburg Confession. And so thank you, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.